0: Hello and welcome to The Inoculation. I'm your co host. My name is Eva von Schaper. I'm hosting this podcast together with Diva.
1: Hello, my name is Diva Repachkaiter, and our guest today is freelance journalist Laura Oliver, who wrote a freelance guide for reporting on vaccines for the European Journalism Center. Among other things, the guide covers understanding trial sizes, finding the right sources, and localizing vaccine coverage. So Laura, welcome to the inoculation. Please tell us about yourself.
2: I am Laura Oliver. I'm a freelance journalist based in the UK. My reporting background is very much generalist. I have covered health topics in the past, but I'm not a specialist. I was asked by the European Journalism Centre to collaborate with them on a series of guides, the aim of which are to provide more resources to freelance journalists on a range of subjects. We've also published one about reporting on gender and identity issues, and our next one will actually be about reporting on uh, misinformation. I think the the thing to realise with these guides is that they are probably useful for most journalists, but they are aimed specifically at freelancers who are likely to be working independently a lot of the time. Although we talk a lot about um, COVID-19 in this guide, actually... This is also relevant to reporters I spoke to who are working in the Philippines, writing about uh, dengue fever vaccination programmes or in parts of uh, West Africa where they've been reporting on childhood um, diseases. So because the pandemic is so all encompassing in terms of our news cycle, a lot of non-specialist reporters are being called to report on this topic If you are someone who, like myself, considers yourself more of a generalist and wants to work out how to tackle this specialist subject, this is a good place to start.
0: So is it safe to say that maybe you yourself are the target audience for this guide?
2: Um, Absolutely. I believe that, you know, as a journalist, it's my job to, on any subject that I'm tasked to report on, to research it thoroughly, to speak to many people. But, you know, with particularly with very specialist subjects, um, if you're moving into a different area, perhaps this is the first time you might be reporting on something scientific or a clinical trial Or you might be doing something, you know, heavily data led. Um, It can be very overwhelming. And so I think having a guide, a resource that helps you, you know, get your approach in order, um, gives you some practical advice on the things you should be kind of thinking of during your process is really valuable. It's going to save you time as well during your process. A lot of the reporters that I interviewed for this guide were talking about how they kind of, organise their time, process information and the checks and balances that they put in place along the way, as opposed to at the edit stage. So, yeah, I'm absolutely the intended audience for it. And I think with all of these guides, that's kind of the approach I've tried to bring to them is how would I apply this in my own work? What questions do I have as a generalist reporter and as a freelance reporter, you know, as a freelance journalist, someone who's working on their own? Okay, so
0: looking at COVID and reporting on COVID and COVID vaccinations, one big question is, why is it so important to get this right? What are the
2: reasons that we need to be especially careful? I think we'll go into particular kind of information challenges with this disease and um, misinformation challenges. But I think very broadly... And something that I came to realise time and again when writing this guide is that, you know, reporting on viruses, reporting on infectious diseases, reporting on vaccinations isn't new. However, a pandemic of this scale that affects so many audiences for journalism, not just countries, but people actually looking for and seeking information on this topic hasn't happened on this scale for for some time. There are parts of the world, of course, have been dealing with in the last 10 to 20 years outbreaks of SARS, MERS, Zika, Ebola. And obviously in those regions, they will have had experiences of reporting on this topic and audience interest. But we're talking about something that is kind of for the worst possible reasons globally of interest. And it just means that the audience demand for information is extraordinary. It also means that there's more public scrutiny but also potential for misunderstanding or gaps in understanding and I think we're reporting, uh, uh, we, the journalism world, are reporting on stages in medical trials and clinical trials that perhaps we wouldn't have been so focused on previously. They might have been something that we talked about at the end when a new drug is approved or a new vaccine is approved for example but at the moment we are pouring over the details of initial very early stage trials and while those things deserve scrutiny of course they do it also means that it's quite a intense uh, way of reporting and it means that the public are finding out information at different stages of this vaccination um, you know, development process and program rollout that perhaps they wouldn't have done before. Plus that couple that with the interest that is in these vaccines becoming available. And then you have this kind of kind of perfect storm of interest in the subject. So I think there's great demand from the audience more so than on other topics before. Equally, for all its good parts, there are some bad parts, as we know, about uh, online reporting, about how this information then passes on social media and social networks and how it can be not necessarily manipulated, but taken out of context or used to shore up our own fears or concerns or unconscious bias. So getting it right, framing it correctly is so crucial to keeping that kind of information system network as clean as possible and as accurate as possible.
1: The guide briefly mentions misinformation. We always grapple with the misinformation which becomes the news. I wonder if you could elaborate the misinformation part and what do you think freelance journalists or journalists in general should pay attention to and be very careful about? For example, one of the questions is, should you name the source of misinformation and should you cite the claim that you label as misinformation?
2: Yes, absolutely. I think this is such an interesting part of this subject and reporting on, on COVID, but also probably a good lesson in how misinformation spreads and how we as an industry can best be prepared for it. I have worked in roles where I've been a kind of verification specialist, you know, handling content uh, user-generated content, eyewitness content from audiences, and verifying it before it enters the newsroom or reporting. And so I've been thinking about this kind of topic for quite some time in my career. Personally, I, I noticed there was a trend, I would say maybe, let's say five years ago, of publishing kind of debunking articles. And I mean, you know, sort of more generalist news sites, you know, there would be something trending and they would you know, say, is this fact or fiction and kind of go through a debunk, explain why. And those are very useful things, because if I'm on a WhatsApp group and my aunt is, you know, passing some misinformation, that gives me something to say back to her, to share back with her and say, actually, auntie, um this isn't quite the case. You know, these people have checked it out. And there's still some really good specialist sites who do this. Full Fact, PolitiFact, Snopes, you know, there's many um around the world as well. Africa, Fact Check who provide this kind of service, it's still there. I think the difficulty for a more generalist news site in publishing these pieces is that they themselves can then amplify the the rumour, the misinformation, the falsehood, if they're not careful. And we need to think about, you know, how repeating misinformation, even to debunk it, could be then taken out of context or manipulated, or indeed could just amplify that misinformation we need to think about what causes misinformation to spread in the first place one of the things is that actually the more information is kind of repeated the more easily we as human beings can process it and that is true also for repeating misinformation so we need to be careful even if we're framing it as a as a takedown or a debunking piece your audience might remember the falsehood and not not all the great work you put into fact checking it after because that's just how we're wired so I think you need to kind of question how necessary is to your reporting is there a way for you to explain to your readers what's going on without blindly repeating the misinformation or indeed putting it on the same level as accurate reporting because you don't kind of want to amplify it in that way either so I think we have to think really carefully in terms of presentation whether we allude to let's say an online meme or something that is being discussed widely, I would question whether you link to that misinformation for example, whether you embed it because again it's putting it on that same kind of level as your journalistic reporting. UNICEF actually has a really great guide about misinformation particularly around kind of scientific reporting and it recommends as well as having our kind of fact-checking, our scientific knowledge we need to have stories that speak to the audience's kind of beliefs and their values, including more narrative or emotional components to the story to help convey the information. And I think that's quite important, too. Again, think about how we read or consume stories. If it's very dry, but the more compelling part is the misinformation, it's possible that we're going to hook onto that. And that's the bit we're going to remember, even if there was a really great factual debunk of it. So just going back to that point about sort of understanding where misinformation comes from, I think some of the best reporting on misinformation topics, both to do with this pandemic, but also more broadly, are those that understand where this misinformation might originate from. It might be scepticism of a subject, but it could also be misunderstanding. It could also be fear. It could also be that that misinfo plays into someone's biases or concerns about a subject and if you can address some of those underlying issues rather than telling people well this is why you're wrong I think there's a kind of narrative question in there that could be more successful and I think this is really important when we come to misinformation around vaccines because it is a very emotive subject and when we're talking about misinformation not disinformation you know it's often to do with as I said people's concerns their fears perhaps they've had negative experiences with clinical settings before or vaccinations and if they then are confronted with a kind of debunk that completely contradicts their beliefs they could reject that credible information as opposed to you know taking it more seriously or taking time to learn from it so it's really about the presentation and the framing trying to understand your audience what might be motivating them, what their beliefs are, as UNICEF said. And one thing that kept coming up was that a specific, you know, strain of misinformation, which is related to anti-vaccination movement, you know, that's just just one element of misinformation, but it is, you know, one we're talking about a lot, is that the communication techniques of some of those anti-vaxxers or anti-vax movements are often very compelling to people. You know, they are emotional, they are personal stories or anecdotes or testimonies from people, talking directly to you on a video and some of the journalists I spoke to for this guide were saying you know we're obviously not going to promote the message but we should look at how they're framing it so you know compellingly because actually we also want to reach that audience and we want to talk to them you might not like what they're saying but they're doing it in a compelling way and the other thing I just wanted to mention there was specifically to do with vaccines and COVID in particular we were talking earlier about the scrutiny that is currently being given to early stage trials for vaccines that are being developed, or treatments as well. And some of the journalists I spoke to, who have been reporting for you know 20, 30 years on on health subjects and and um, immunology and vaccinations, are saying we have to understand that a trial group, you know, maybe it's 3,000 people being tested. That seems like a lot. But it's, it's actually not, you know, having data from that subset of people is really useful. But if we consider the whole human population, you're going to have multiple subgroups of people within it. And it's only as these vaccines get to go through their whole development process and are used more widely and tested more widely that we'll understand them in their fullness. We have to be conscious of that when reporting so that that doesn't support people who are already concerned about the fact that they haven't been tested widely. But also make it clear that this is what happens normally in a vaccine process. Be clear about who it's been tested on so far, who actually has been involved in these trials, what these different parts of the process were testing for, because they're different at different stages. You know, we have to be very contextual in our reporting in a way that requires taking a breath, particularly when it comes to the data from these trials, where we might see a very obvious headline, but we really need to contextualize it first.
0: So talking about contextualizing things, I'm wondering how do we report things without scaring people? Because of course, the truth is sometimes people will be vaccinated and there will be some side effects. So that is one thing. And I think in Europe, we've had a couple of headlines about one specific vaccine. And I think there was always this implication that this AstraZeneca vaccine may lead to some kind of side effects or is less safe or less effective. So I think one question is, how do I report on these things? How do I report on something without amplifying untrue facts or misconceptions? There's always a lot of pressure in the media environment. So how do we handle all of these factors?
2: Yeah, it's a great question question and actually some of those examples you just gave there particularly some of the stories that have emerged from various corners of the German press I'm thinking of some earlier this year about the the efficacy of some of the vaccines within certain age groups are a good example because actually once the genie's out of the bottle in terms of that story as we were saying you know that's the thing that people remember and then it's very hard to wheel back from that and most of the experienced journalists in this area who I talked to We're urging for a longer term view. You know, so the best way to contextualise this, the best way to present this information is to try and resist that temptation and try and step back and look at trends and wait for more peer reviewed information. Now, that is easy for me to say when we're in this really pressurised environment. But I do think it is something to kind of remind ourselves of that we have a duty to our audience. So can we you know, hold our horses. Can we wait for the end of that trial? Can we explain the fact that we still don't know these things and we're waiting to find out? Because it is, you know, it can be very dangerous once this information is out there. I think other things that people recommended to me were with things like side effects to make sure you've got your data correct. If there were side effects reported as part of a vaccine development trial, How many people were actually affected in terms of the whole trial? How severe were they? You know, it's not denying that there are side effects. You know, one journalist said to me, no medicine is 100% safe. So it's even questioning how we use words like that and being really careful. And they were saying to me, you know, it's very much about helping people understand beyond that headline, what the reality is, you know, how many people is this likely to affect? In what circumstances were these things experienced? Now, that's very difficult because we're writing to type word counts or tight video scripts. So it is a real challenge in order to have kind of efficient, clear language. A lot of the journalists I spoke to said it's also about you know, thinking about the sparsity of language, but also the plainest possible explanations of these things. The more clinical terminology you introduce, the more parts of the process that you haven't explained for the kind of everyday reader, the worse it can be. So you have to be really kind of tough on yourself in terms of questioning, will, will someone who has not been following this story understand this? Will some, you know, these, these are good things for us to remember as journalists generally. But I do think a lot of the journalists I spoke to this said, You know, even if I've been reporting on this for 15 years, if I'm looking at a table of data in a clinical trial that's just released and I don't understand it, I will wait and I will talk to like three different people who can pass the data with me. However experienced we are as journalists, you know, there's still (laughs) it's still if you're unsure like take that time was the lesson and I spoke to some really amazing people who've been reporting on this for a long time and they just said no if I'm not sure I will make sure I you know double triple check because it's new to me and it's new information to the world and I want to make sure I get it right so I agree with you it's a real challenge because there's a great deal of pressure I mean a side point is that there should be a real discussion about you know, how does that sit on a website? How does that sit on the news media's social media channels when it's suddenly without the context of other information around it? When it's no longer next to that fact box that was on a printed page, or it's no longer next to, you know, the, the editor's carefully worded opinion piece. So we have to think about that again, going back to that point of kind of keeping our information systems clean and accurate. And um, that is part of it too, when things are stripped out of context.
0: So I think when we're talking about the AstraZeneca vaccine, I think there was one broadsheet that was just plain out wrong on their information. So I think they were saying that the AstraZeneca vaccine is not effective in the population of the over 65s, when in fact, the studies showed that there was just not enough data. And I think that was just then the impression of the efficacy of the vaccine that was out in the public. So I think that's one example as to why we really need to look at these things and be careful about these things.
2: Absolutely. And why we need to celebrate our specialists and also probably as an industry, look at how we develop different specialisms in the years to come, because this unfortunately probably will not be the last time we're talking about this subject or reporting on this topic and, you know, there's a problem in other parts of outside of Europe in terms of how journalism is trained and how, you know, newsrooms have been cut. Specialists have been lost. So we're relying more on generalists to cover many different subjects. And, you know, it it happens if this is not your beat, you know, mistakes can creep in. So I think there's probably a bit of a broader conversation as well for us to have post <laughs> post pandemic, if such a time exists, because you're right, it's very hard to brain it back in once a mistake like that has been made. Um you cannot guarantee that the audience who saw that will see your correction. You cannot guarantee that the same people who passed it on to their friends will also pass on the, the new information. And on that
1: note, what do you think could be done to control the fact that we're always after stories and we're always after <laughs> what's new? So most of the time if something goes wrong, that's news. If something goes well, that's not a story, that's not news. So, you know, ninety nine percent of people safely went home after their uh, kind of healthcare intervention. That's yes. not news. We will never sell this story. At the same time, now that there's a lot of pressure for mainstream reporters, so to say, to to report on uh, the things that governments do right or the things that work in science or in public health, we are being accused of being propaganda mouthpieces and whatnot. So what would you suggest for finding that balance between provision of information or dispensing information on public health Mm -hmm. and being sort of on the side of the public health authorities and, on the other hand, constantly criticizing them and exposing their mistakes and there are some significant mistakes? But by doing so, contributing to this oversized mistrust in public health?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And some of the journalists I spoke to said, particularly on this topic, with a specific example of, let's say, um, vaccination programmes being rolled out. We don't want to contribute to vaccine hesitancy. Vaccines are amazing things that have saved millions of lives around the world. And the acceptance of those vaccines is incredibly important for public health. I'm not specifically talking about COVID, actually. One of the journalists I spoke to said it's really important to accurately represent the kind of stages that, say, the government or public health service has gone through in order to develop that vaccination rollout. For example, if you're at the stage where perhaps there's like mandatory vaccination programmes, what were the gates that they passed through? Perhaps they tried to roll it out to different sectors and it didn't work. It's not like something like a mandatory Program, which could seem very scary to parts of the population. It's not usually the first port of call. Usually there's been quite a lot of work done before we've got to that point. So again, it's this idea of we need to report on those different stages, but we also need to make sure that we're, you know, referencing, linking back to that previous reporting, explaining that this is part of a bigger process. And actually, I think that was the theme that came through from everyone I spoke to on this subject. About how do you continue to challenge and kind of scrutinize? in a necessary way without contributing to mistrust in public health institutions or hesitancy. And I think it was to have a kind of the healthy level of scepticism that a journalist should have and balance it out. So, for example, a lot of the journalists I spoke to said, you know, if we're reporting on a great big announcement from a public health institution um, and a research institution, We will speak to those people, but we're also going to speak to other people who worked on that project that aren't listed in the press release. We're going to speak to people who have been running similar projects elsewhere. And, you know, just little things to remind us as a journalist that we should always really be doing that, you know, don't interview the same person that's been interviewed a 100 times on this same, you know, speak to them. But yeah, but then go, go and speak to a more diverse range of, of people who've been involved in this project and get more balance and more insight into its success or its pitfalls that way. So,
0: Laura, I have one more quick question, and it's really important to get things right. And obviously, we also know how important vaccination is. At the same time, we don't work for the WHO and we don't work for the government. So how do we draw that line between our job and some of the agencies or NGOs that are working on the problem?
2: That's a great point. Um, We're not here to cheerlead, you know, for those organizations. And we're here to ask the right questions of them and their motivations and, you know, everything from the logistics of how things are rolled out to how they're running their operations. You know, all of these things there to be screwed tonight. I think it is a lot about, you know, this journalistic principle of fairness and that runs through both the reporting, but also the presentation of it. So none of those places are off limits to be questioned by reporters. However, we need to think about on a subject like this the kind of the value and the weight of information and the platforms we're putting it on. So if there's a claim made by the WHO that we want to scrutinise and question and report on, great. But if we find it to hold weight then, you know, we need to represent that in our reporting. If we're going to challenge it and actually it turns up Trump's, great. This goes back to your question, over about, you know, we tend to report on the things that went wrong rather than things that went right. So something, this is what I was going to say before, and actually kind of ties in with this, which is I've been thinking a lot recently about um, this idea of constructive journalism, solutions journalism, which... Isn't about, oh, let's report on what's gone well. It's about looking at regional and global problems, the people who are trying to solve them and then assessing the limitations of those solutions and how effective they are. So it doesn't just end with, Hey, we've solved it. Great. We've got, you know, we've set up a new initiative. And so I think that that kind of model can apply when we're looking at the work of, you know, these big nonprofits, these big public health institutions, they might be offering something very positive and we're going to look at that. But we should also look at it through this lens of where might it fall down? Where are the challenges? How might it not work? Something else that came up a lot um, to the journalists is that is also interested in the kind of political angle of these things. And we've seen this play out in Europe, you know, between various countries and their response to, say, the WHO's advice. So that there's a story to be told there, which allows us again to kind of journalistically challenge the role of these organisations without undermining the sound public health messaging, but saying you have to also understand that while their top virologist's advice on what to do to deal with coronavirus is sound... We do have concerns about, you know, this organisation's involvement in this programme or this region. You know, so the two things can exist together. So that was a very long answer to your question. I think it's very challenging. And I think, as you say, it's about remembering that we're not there to kind of cheerlead. It's about fairness and realising that the two things aren't kind of mutually exclusive. You know, you can have sound advice and sound messaging alongside other questions about an organization's structure, motivation, funding, all these things. A journalist I spoke to who'd worked a lot in the Philippines talked about this. You know, she was saying she was really interested in the stories about how the government was rolling out vaccination programmes in line with its kind of political aims. And she said, you know, unquestionably vaccinating people against dengue fever in that region is a good thing, but it was the way it was being meted out and the way it was being delivered that she needed to to challenge.
1: You mentioned the politics of vaccination. We have electoral politics, but we also have global politics. And I was wondering if you have some advice for journalists on how to report on the Sputnik uh, vaccine from Russia. And we know that this is a very interesting and very highly charged field. And we know that uh, Slovakia and Hungary are already rolling it out. The criticism of this specific product can also spill over to other vaccines. So do you have any advice
2: Something that came up repeatedly was that there, like it or not, there are politics involved at every kind of level of this, from the very micro politics within research communities <laughs> all the way through to, as you say, you know, global politics, geopolitics um, and how it's being played out. I feel like to my mind, some of the best advice ap- applies to all of those situations, which several of the journalists said to me, which is whoever is announcing a great new development, a new vaccine, Great. They will speak to them. But while they're speaking to them, they will also be checking out who's paid for this research, who else was involved, all of the background checking they can do. And then they will go to as many independent sources to discuss that, you know, that data or that development with them as possible to take a, a snapshot of not necessarily how reliable is the information, but the it's the motivations, you know, where does this come from? What's the aim behind it? Who's helped develop it? So we get a clearer sense of kind of what, as you say, what other systems might it be linked to or other forces might be at play in terms of, gosh in terms of unpicking kind of western bias to vaccines developed outside of the west I mean that's like the biggest subject ever I think it probably goes back to what we were saying earlier about understanding your audiences very well when reporting on this subject so being honest about okay We know that when we've reported, we we know that wherever we are reporting in the world, this is typically how people view developments from this other part of the world. And do we need to provide extra sourcing or extra interviews or extra data in order to kind of quell some of those concerns? Because otherwise it's not even going to reach that first layer of audience. So, uh, you know, we do need to be aware that our audience is a complex, multifarious beings with many different perspectives of the world, and perhaps we need to address some of those. I don't think that will solve all our kind of geopolitical biases. I think it's a really interesting example, as you say, because this particular vaccine is already being rolled out in some nations for reporters to then go and look at those specific rollouts in more detail. And talk to, you know, the very eminent scientists who will be involved in that process about what they're doing and the assessments they've made and the risks that they've calculated, you know, because I think it's really important to hear those voices, those on the ground voices who are dealing with their own very specific populations. And again, that context is important. These are different regional populations having programmes rolled out for them. And that that is different to where I live, different to where you live. You know, so these things are really important, too. That is something as well that several of the journalists I spoke to for this guide mentioned is trying to vary their Um, their kind of contacts and their sources on this subject to become more international, to understand, you know, where regional specialists are or leading voices or people, really interesting people they should be speaking to in certain areas. Everything from like how these vaccines are produced to how they're delivered, the logistics involves many nations. So just relying on your sources in your own country is going to limit you and it could ultimately damage your reporting. I think it was um, one of the science journalists, I spoke to Eve, who said, and he said, look, I know it's more work (laughs) building up an international context book, but it will get you more stories and it will mean your reporting is deeper and better
0: what would you say are your top three to do's and maybe to never do's? What do you think are the top three things journalists should watch out for?
2: So I think the first would be ask, ask and ask again when it comes to data. If dealing with kind of anti-vaccination viewpoints, if you're looking at someone who's motivated and has an, an anti-vax agenda, I wouldn't want to be giving them the same platform as fair and accurate reporting on vaccination programmes. I think be clear about whether it's someone who is a member of the public who is scared of needles versus someone who is, you know, a motivated anti-vaccination campaigner. And I guess finally on that point, something that we, we sort of haven't touched upon, but there's lots of great information out there about, which is how you illustrate visuals. It's very emotive. Many people, you know, they might be pro-vaccination completely, but they're scared of needles or they had a really bad experience as a kid. So think about the choice of images or the linguistic description we use for the vaccination process. Um, try and focus on the positive health benefits as opposed to giant shots of needles or people being stabbed in the arm you know these these things are just unnecessary and can add kind of an unnecessary level of fear
0: thank you so much okay excellent thank you so much laura
2: lovely to meet you both thanks so much
0: and if you have any comments you can always email us at theinoculation at gmail.com. And to make sure you never miss our stories and conversations, you can follow us on Twitter at T-Inoculation. That's T like tango. Our Instagram is the underscore inoculation. And you can also follow us individually. I'm at Eva von Schaper. That's S-C-H, all in one word. And I'm at Diva underscore hadiva.
1: Our research is supported by JournalismFund.eu.
0: Thank you for listening and bye for now.